Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, January the 29th, 2024. It is currently 4.52 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, if I was one of those people who was very superstitious and whenever something happens, I'm like, oh, is that a sign? Oh, is that a sign? Is that a sign? If I was one of those kinds of people, I would not be broadcasting right now because for the last, it feels like 15, 20 minutes, I have tried to go live and everything has gone wrong. The internet has crashed multiple times. Our artwork wasn't showing up on some platforms. It's just nothing was working. Everything was going wrong. So that should be a sign. Hey, don't do this broadcast. Don't do it. Well, I'm not going to listen to the signs. I'm just going to ignore the signs and just say things happen. I don't believe that it's a sign in any way, shape, or form. Or I could do the very pious You know, because pastors, some churches love to do this. If anything goes wrong, it's because Satan is trying to stop you from hearing this sermon. Satan does not want this sermon to be heard. Satan does not want this podcast. I'm not going to go over pious, like overly pious like that. And I'm not going to be superstitious. I'm just going to be like technology, things go wrong. All right. But I think we've worked through all of that. Even though we've worked through all of that, we've got something else to work through. We got to work through a response. We got to work through another controversy. For many of you, many of you know that there's been a big controversy surrounding Alistair Begg, who's a very well-known Bible teacher and preacher and pastor, uh, author. He's he's loved by many, well-respected for, for years, never involved in any controversy, and his sermons have been heard around the world on Christian radio, uh, on the internet, podcast, etc., etc., etc. But Alistair Begg found himself in a controversy because I think it was, I don't even know, 2023, I don't know what year it was. It was, it was a, uh, maybe a year ago, two years ago. It was, a, it was a wall back. He answered a question on his podcast. Someone had written in, it was a grandmother, basically saying, hey, my grandson's getting married. I think it was a same-sex marriage. And I've been invited. Should I go? And he asked some questions. Do they know that you're a believer? Yes. Okay. Do they know that this is in, in, in conflict with your belief beliefs? Yes. Okay. Well, you should go and buy them a gift. I'm paraphrasing it and summarizing it, but that's basically it. He just answered a question, right? He asked some questions. He seemed to add, make sure add some clarification. And he did so. He he still has preached that homosexuality is a sin, that same-sex marriage is not compatible with, you know, a biblical understanding of marriage. He still has preached that. He never changed that view. But because he answered that question that way, <laughs> Christians were ready to condemn him and say that he's now woke, he's liberal, calling him into question, I mean, almost coming close to referring to him as a heretic. And then American Family Radio pulled him him from the airwaves, pulled him from their radio network because his 
his answer was incompatible with biblical concepts, even though if we talked about the things on American Family Radio, it's like, wait, are you really are you really worried about biblical concepts? Because it sounds like that you're approaching this more from a political perspective than a theological perspective. But I digress. The controversy ensued. I turned on the microphone. I tried to offer my perspective on the controversy, which I agreed with Alistair Begg. I, I defended his perspective and I offered scripture and I tried to offer I think a reasoned, logical, biblical perspective. Now, <laughs> some of you online did not, re- exp- uh, how can we say this? Not only did you not appreciate it, you definitely did not respect it. And what was weird is those who seemed to disagree, it was more like little snide comments, being a smart aleck, you know, oh, I'm never going to get those 12 minutes back. And just little, like little comments like that, just not, not offering anything of, of, of substance, nothing I could say. Those who seem to have agreed with me, they were the ones who offered a much more, you know, an actual, you know, response, an actual comment, you know, you know, a, a number of sentences, maybe an entire paragraph, um, you know, well-reasoned, well-thoughtful, gracious, considerate, and, and, and just immediately just shows you sometimes the, the way Christians can be. Some Christians are so judgmental, so condemning, so arrogant that they can't even be, uh, they want to condemn you. They want to be a smart aleck. They don't want to act like a Christian. They don't want to act like a believer. They just want to act like, I don't know, a condescending jerk. And I don't know what you, what you think you're going to accomplish by emailing someone like that. I don't know what you, well, you know, congratulations, you know, thanks for being, I, I, I don't know what you get, but others of you, we're much more thoughtful, and I do appreciate that. So wherever you fall in the controversy, whichever side you find yourself, well, on Sunday, Alistair Begg, well, he's given a response. From my understanding, this response sounds like he gave this at church during his sermon, that he dedicated his entire sermon to offering a response. Now, Whenever I heard that there was a response out there, you know what I did. I went and found it. I downloaded it. But you know what? What's something I didn't do? I didn't listen to it because I don't like to listen to it and then play it because then it feels like my response is all rehearsed. I hate that. So I like to respond in real time. So we're going to listen to Alistair Begg's response to this controversy about him offering some advice to a grandmother who's like, hey, my my grandson's getting married, same-sex wedding, and, you know... What should I do? And then he asked some basic, you know, clarifying questions. I said, go and buy a gift. And next thing you know, he's, you know, the Christian world's ready to throw him out and condemn him. And, you know, he's not doing his Christianity my way because my way is the only way kind of mentality. He, he's our, and, and again, pulled from, you know, at least one Christian radio network. I don't know if there's going to be others that follow. Maybe his response Maybe he's going to, is he going to take some steps back and go, well, I didn't quite mean it that way. And then everyone's going to be like, oh, Alistair Begg again. Um, I, I've seen there's, there's some YouTube videos. Um, I don't, I get, I don't know if John Piper offered a response, but it's like John Piper versus, versus Alistair Begg. So I don't know if they're just contrasting the two different ways to answer this kind of question. I don't know. Um, I, I saw something about will Alistair Begg be invited to the Shepherds Conference? And, you know, it's just all the Christian, you know, I fighting and bickering and po- politics and, ugh. 
the whole thing. But since I've addressed the story, then it would be, I would be irresponsible. It would be negligent on my part not to at least play the response. So we're going to play and listen and we're going to review the response just like I would do anything in real time. I'm going to hit play, pause, I'll talk, play, pause, I'll talk. And I mean, this is a 47 minute and 23 second response. So you know this means this is going to be a long episode and we probably will not be able to finish this in one. I'm going to try to do my best to finish this in one episode, but I want Alistair Begg to be heard. I want his response to be heard. And here's what I would tell people. If you disagree with his response, if you disagree with my review of his response, my critique, my analysis of his response, let me just throw this out there. If you're a Christian and you can't bring yourself to respond in a thoughtful, biblical manner and you just act like a jerk— and you just want to be condescending and sarcastic. And you just, you know, just here, here's, here's an idea. Just go, go, go respond to someone else. Or here's a better thing, better, here's a better suggestion. How about just get off the internet and maybe look at yourself spiritually? Because there's no reason to act like that. This is not a junior high playground and you're the bully. Just, just how about just respond in a thoughtful adult-like manner? You know, it's not, you know, Donald Trump's truth social account. If you have a, if you have a biblical perspective that says, no, you shouldn't go. Okay. I understand that. If that's the way you want to go now, just make sure you take it and be completely take it to its logical conclusion, which is exactly what I put forth is the problem with this is everyone's like, no, you don't go to this. And then there's a million other examples where, well, wait a minute. If you take your stance, you shouldn't be attending this wedding or this wedding, or you shouldn't be going this, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. And that's why Paul, when Paul talked about who we should separate ourselves from, he was like, I'm not talking about the world because we'd have to basically leave the world. But if someone who's called a brother, then Paul said, there are certain things we, sh- we shouldn't even eat. But, but nobody wanted to, those who had a disagreement didn't want to even actually engage in, in any substantive, substantive uh, you know, response. And it's just, it's so childish. And I've seen some of the responses, not just directed at me, uh, on the Christian Post article and other places where people are discussing this this controversy. And once again, it's, it's, it seems that those who are against Alistair Begg, they just come across as self-righteous, arrogant jerks. Like they are the, the Christian police and what they say is right. And it's, and it, and it's so just, oh, it's so just disgusting and off-putting and just makes you go. I mean, it's just like, sometimes you want to look at these people do you think, like, literally, you act like you're God? You act like that you're sinless. So, I, 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 I'm the the reaction to this controversy. I think has bothered me far more than the controversy. Alistair Begg, all of these years of preaching, and then American Family Radio is like, you answered a question, not the way we want you to answer the question. Boom, you're off the air because because you're going to do Christianity our way. Now, wait, wait, is that is that a requirement to be on American Family Radio is that you have to answer questions about which weddings to attend according to American Family Radio's list of rules about weddings? 
It's not that he changed his teaching about homosexuality. He simply answered a question about attending a wedding. And, and that's, I guess now within the Christian world, we have no room to have any disagreement on that. But, but you can let people air on American Family Radio that I, I think have theological problems. But hey, we don't care about theological problems anymore because I, this, is what, this is what's taken precedent in the American church. Politics and culture war, not theology, not being biblically minded. And Alistair Begg did not walk the fine and narrow of the culture war, of the political battle. And people say, no, we're standing for righteousness. He answered a question about whether you should or shouldn't attend a wedding. He didn't tell anyone to change their views on whether homosexuality was right or wrong. He did not tell them to deny any biblical teaching in any way, shape, or form. He basically called them to be a friend of sinners. But we have to get started. So are you ready? Ladies and gentlemen, I believe this was, uh, today is Monday, yesterday, that would be January the 28th, Alistair Begg offered a response. I don't know how head on he's going to address the controversy, or is this just meant to be, hey, here's my, controver- here's my answer to the controversy in a sermon form. instead of address- Now, maybe he's going to address it more in a podcast format. Where he, you know, he kind of just responds to it and maybe answers and he answers questions from a host and someone kind of moderates the discussion. I, I don't know. I don't know how he's going to do it. But uh, here's at least, we'll call this his first response, maybe. And we'll see. Will this get him back on American Family Radio? Will this get him back in the good graces of the, you know, the evangelical, you know, uh, magisterium, you know, because he's obviously violated the evangelical magisterium and many are mad and many are ready to throw him out. So I don't know, will this get him back in the good graces or is it only going to create more controversy? We're going to find out together and we're going to do that right now. The following message by Alistair Begg is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and to chapter 13 and to follow along, I should say Luke chapter 15, and to follow along as I read from here. Uh, Let me tell you what I plan to do. I want to say a word or two from the text here somewhat briefly. I then want to um, give you some of the background to the influences on my own thinking in relationship to these things, and um, then perhaps uh, some uh, concluding comments. For those of you who have just arrived and you say, I don't have a clue what he's talking about, well, just ask someone next to you. I'm sure somebody has some idea, Um, and and if not, it will become clear in the end. Luke chapter 15, and uh, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead— and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
Amen. Okay, a pretty powerful way to begin. He he kind of alludes to what he's going to do. He doesn't really mention the controversy by name or or in any specific or direct way. And then he reads all of Luke chapter 15. Pretty powerful passage, right? Of Luke 15. And well, I, there's I could already start making all kinds of observations, but I'm not I'm not the one who's supposed to give the response. He's supposed to give the response. So as he addresses certain things in Luke 15, I will then respond to those because I want to start working through the whole text myself and start just teaching it myself and and relate it to the controversy and relate it to the controversy and relate how we are to engage with those who are lost, with those who are sinners, how we how we should engage them. How we should show them love and compassion. Because I don't know if you realize this. You may point to their sin, but you're still a sinner. You may not be committing their sin, but you're still a sinner. So for every sinner that you condemn, and you're like, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. And anything to do with that. Well, you may not have anything to do with yourself because you are a sinner. No matter how much you want to pretend that you're not. No matter how godly you want to pretend. No matter how self-righteous you want to act. No matter how many people you want to condemn. You're still a sinner with a sinful nature and you sin in thought, word, and deed by what you do and by what you leave undone. And sometimes our self-righteous condemnation, our, our so-called righteous indignation is nothing more than projecting because it, we are guilty of, of very similar sins. But this is a beautiful passage. So let's see how Alistair is going to handle this. And if he's going to address the controversy in very specific terms or just, hey, here's what I believe the Bible teaches and, well, you can apply it to the controversy in your own way. He may approach it that way. What we'll, we're going to find out. A brief prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for the testimonies that we've just heard of your grace and your goodness, the way in which you work mysteriously and wonderfully in the hearts and minds of men and women, showing us who we are and showing us how much we need Jesus, and then bringing us to that wonderful closing reality of faith in Him. We thank you that the heartbeat of you, the Father, is for those who are to be added to your family. And we thank you that as we read the Bible, we don't have to stretch to find that application. And so we pray that as we have these moments together now, given the framework out of which uh, we come to this evening, we pray that the Holy Spirit will preside over all of my words, all of my thinking, our thinking, and that you will give to us a great sense of joy and delight in the privilege that you've granted to us of seeking to see unbelieving people become the committed followers of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. The context is set in the opening two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. And the reason for their complaint was, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he gives to us these... Uh, Three pictures, first of having sheep, all of them secure, one lost, seeking it, the joy that follows it. Then this picture of uh, either a necklace or whatever it might have been, 
and the loss of one of these pieces, and then all of the search for it. And the joy that is represented in that is uh, nothing compared to the joy before the angels of God, he says, over a sinner who repents. And then he moves on to give to us the story of the two sons. And clearly, uh, the end of this um, chapter, which begins in verse 25 with the record of the older son, is Jesus making sure that the Pharisees do not miss the application of what he's saying, that people would be able to hear this, and they would be able to say, well, I see myself in this. Uh, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. But perhaps other people listening would not make those applications at all. And there are two sons who are lost in this chapter. One is lost far away, and the other one is lost close up. And I want just to point three things out concerning this older son. His acknowledgment of his brother's return is at best a grudging acknowledgment. And three observations. The first is this, uh, the discovery that this man hated to make, the discovery that he hated to make. Um, he discovers, as we're told in the text, that there was music and there was dancing, and the celebration was already in place. He then dispatches, in verse 26, one of the servants uh, to go and investigate. In fact, he asks the servant, what is it that's going on with all of this celebration? And of course, the servant tells him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The expectation, I think, would be, at least on the part of the servant, that this would be a source of real joy for this brother, that uh, he would understand that um, his brother had been gone, had been lost to him and lost to the family in many ways, and now he was back. Now, I don't know if Alistair is going to go in this direction. But I'm going to jump in and go in this direction. I think for some Christians, when someone falls into sin, someone does whatever, whatever the sin is, whatever the, the, the horrible thing is, right? And they see that. They, I don't know if they ever really want anyone to repent. I don't, they don't really want celebration. They just want, no, 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 no. That person's in. Now we mark them forever and they are to go away and to never be heard or seen from again because they failed because we are the righteous ones and that is the sinner. And we, we will not have anything to do with the unclean people because we are the righteous ones. We are the godly ones. And I think some people almost grudgingly get mad if someone repents and there's a celebration. They don't want a, they don't want a celebration. They don't want restoration. They, don't, they want condemnation. They want judgment. They want consequences. They want someone to suffer. They want to talk and mark and, and gossip and slander. Instead of saying, whoa, that was... That, they sinned, but God's grace is greater than their sin. And they have repented. They have acknowledged their sin. Kill the fatted calf. They have returned and let's celebrate. Let's restore them to a position of usefulness. 
the older brother is not happy. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're, we, we seem to only celebrate grace and mercy when we are the recipients of, we don't seem to always want to celebrate grace and mercy when someone we, for some reason, we don't believe deserve it, but none of us deserves grace or mercy. Not even you, I guess one without sin because you throw all of your stones. So you obviously believe you are without it. Let's see how, what Alistair does here. But the reaction of the elder brother is certainly not celebration. And uh, we're told that he was angry and he refused to go in. He could not celebrate the fact that his brother had come back and that his father had been prepared to accept him. So the discovery that he hated to make is also then followed by the sympathy that he failed to express. Uh, He sent a servant to find out what was going on. He could easily have gone himself, couldn't he? But he didn't want to be contaminated, I think, by the situation as it was unfolding. He sends a servant. The father doesn't send the servant back by way of response, but the father comes back himself. That, of course, is an important principle, isn't it? That the father came out and entreated him. He came out and implored him. He came out and beseeched him. The perspective of the father is a yearning for both of his sons. He rejoices that one has returned, but he's concerned because he has another one actually in his own backyard that doesn't understand the reality of that which the other boy has discovered. And what Jesus is making clear here is the fact that God is a seeking God, that God is seeking those who are far from him, whether they're a long way away or whether they're actually close up. And the father goes out to both of them, you will notice. In the story of the other boy, He decides he's coming back to his father. He's prepared his speech. I will say to him, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he arose and came to his father. But then the very next phrase is so wonderful, isn't it? But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. How did his father see him when he was a great way off? Because he was looking for him. Why was he looking for him? Because the heart of the father yearned for his boy. There's no difference here. Why does he go out and entreat him? Why does he go out and implore him? Because he longs for him. And the absence, you see, of forgiveness on the part of the older brother reveals something. It reveals that he doesn't understand the nature of forgiveness, that he doesn't understand what it means to actually be forgiven. And as a result of that, he doesn't have the capacity— to forgive others who need the forgiveness. Now, if, if I can cross-reference uh, the, the book which gave rise to the response to the grandmother, which gave rise to the interview about the book, there's logic in me parlaying to here, because what I'm saying is, unless, unless someone understands the forgiveness of God— and how we are so in the wrong with God, 
whether you're a religious Pharisee or whether you're a lost cause, a drug-addicted, crazy person, the same grace of God is what woos us and wins us and brings us to himself. If we do not understand the nature of our predicament, then we never understand the reality of our forgiveness. It's so true. If, you'll never, if you never understand how much of a sinner you are, you don't truly understand the significance of the forgiveness, and then you become unforgiving, and you just become condemning. And many Christians seem to either think that they weren't so bad, or maybe they thought that they were so bad, because in some cases, they brag about how bad they were. But now they for, are forgiving. They, they, in some cases, they, they, for some weird reason, don't understand the forgiveness in a true way because they don't really want to forgive. I don't think they want other people to be forgiven. They just want to yell and scream. This is, this is very true because, and he, he mentioned the grandmother here. So that goes back to the whole controversy where how he answered the question about a same sex wedding. What many Christians want to do is they'll want to go to a pride parade or they'll go to any LGBTQ activity, and they just want to stand outside and yell and scream and call them sodomites, and you're going to burn and just condemn, 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 condemn. And it's like, and then they mock, and they and, and there's like they're there mocking and laughing, and it's like there's no brokenness and compassion and love for these people. No, 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 no. There is a disgust and a hatred. Oh, my, there's, and they'll say, no, no, no. We want them saved. You don't want them saved. You're just yelling and screaming. You're just hurling condemnation. You're not even meaningfully trying to have any kind of a meaningful conversation. You just want to yell and scream and call them names. You, you, you clearly don't understand forgiveness and you don't understand how much of a sinner you were. And in this book, that's what I'm actually saying, I'm, because we're working from the Sermon on the Plain, and we are understanding the fact that Jesus—well, let me just quote it—the proof that we understand how we have been loved by God, says Jesus, is to love our enemies. The kind of love that is only possible as God enables us by the Holy Spirit. I think it's so true. That we, that if we, if we truly understand God's love, then we love our enemies because we know he loved his enemy, which was me. And so many times when Christians are dealing with issues pertaining to homosexuality, the LGBTQ world, they don't love their enemy. They just want to condemn. They just want those people to act right. Do right. Stop doing that. Don't do that. Don't talk that way. Don't. No, no. Don't you change your pronoun. No, don't do that. You're going to. You're, no, you can't change your name. You can't do this. You can't do that. Stop that. And all we, all we want to do is just make them act in a way that makes us comfortable. We don't, we don't show love. We don't show compassion. We don't show empathy. And you say, well, how can I show compassion or empathy for something that's so vile? Well, because God showed compassion and empathy for you, for he sent his only son to die for you. You, you can be able to show empathy because you, even though you can't understand their sin, you should be able to understand sin because you are a sinner. It may not be that sin, but you got your own sin. If we understand God's love, we understand forgiveness, and we love our enemies, or we should strive to love our enemies. 
When you're condemning someone, where is the, I, I know what you'll say, but, but, but I'm supposed to be against sin. Well, you can be against sin and show love for your enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself when the category of neighbor includes everyone you meet, including your enemies. To do so is a supernatural action, and it is an action that is proof of our salvation. This is supposed to be an uncomfortable challenge. Now, there's the proof of your salvation argument. Remember, if I'm looking to my life to prove my salvation— that is not, see, and, and this is where I, I got no problem disagreeing with Alistair here, right? I got no problem here. I, I know we love the proof concept in the evangelical world. No, the proof is when I hear love my neighbor, love my enemy, what that shows me is my inability to do it. It proves that I can't do it. So if I want proof of my salvation, my proof of my salvation is Christ who did love his enemy and did love his neighbor because I will always fail to do it. We should strive to do it, but we're always going to fail. So when you turn it to proof of salvation, well, then then, then guess what? Then everyone's going to be, you have to convince yourself that you're loving your enemy and loving your neighbor as yourself when the reality is you're not, just like I'm not. But we should strive for it. It's what we should strive to do. And we should feel guilt and condemnation and, and shame when we don't. And then that runs us to the cross, drives us to the cross where we go, in Christ Jesus, I do love my enemy because his righteousness and obedience is imputed to me by faith alone. But yes, I think for many Christians, you, you don't care about loving people. You don't even, I don't sometimes, I don't even know if you care about them being saved. You just want them to do what you want them to do. You're like, don't do that action. Don't do that action. Why are, why do you just want them to act the way you want them to act? You should be more worried about loving them so that they can learn to trust in your savior. That's is what you want. And then once they trust in the savior, then discipleship and obedience is the pursuit. You, we want obedience before salvation because their disobedience makes us uncomfortable. It is certainly un, very uncomfortable to me. That's what I'm saying in the book. Here is how I think through what it would mean for me to live out Jesus' command myself. I think of people who are behaving in a way that rejects God and his ways. Now, what you need to know is that when I'm writing this, I am actually dealing with the circumstances that were in our minds when we studied Romans chapter 1, the reality of the finger in the face of God that is represented in those who have turned their backs on God, even to the point of their own sexuality being turned upside down. So when I write the line— Uh, I think of people who are behaving in a way that rejects God. That is a comprehensive reality, but this is what is in my mind. Who reject God and his ways. That undermines what God says glues societies and families together. What glues societies and families together? The reality of conjugal love in a heterosexual monogamous marriage that produces children. They reject God. They reject his ways. 
They do it publicly, and they do it in a fashion that makes it absolutely clear that they have no interest in it while, quotes, mocking Christians as bigots. That's the context. Naturally, I do not like them, quote. But I am called to the supernatural work of loving them, not ignoring them, not avoiding them, but actively seeking to bless them. I am not called to walk on past them like the religious leaders in the parable of the Good Samaritan. No, I am called to be like the Samaritan, who is the classic illustration of loving and lending and doing good without a calculator and without the expectation of a payback. Now, that is then the context when a grandmother phones me up in tears and gravely concerned for the circumstances in relationship to one of our grandchildren. I'm not quoting the book to her. I'm only responding to her. She wrote a long letter. It sat on my desk for a long time. This happens to us all as pastors all the time. And on that occasion, when I listened to her talk, my great concern was for her and for her relationship with her granddaughter. I wasn't thinking about the nature of the circumstances in that moment of time. All I was thinking about was, how can I help this grandmother not to lose her granddaughter, who has already publicly turned her back on God and her back on God's design and in every other way? Okay, that's interesting. I thought the Christian Post uh, reported it as grandson. Or maybe I misread it. He's saying granddaughter. So either way, granddaughter, grandson, either way, it's a grandchild— and she she doesn't know what to do. And he is concerned about her relationship with her grandchild. And see, when, when he even tries to do that, people are like, oh, oh, what is he doing? That's liberal. That's woke. That's a compromiser. He should stand for Jesus. Who cares if you have a relationship with your grandchild? Who cares? Well, you, you can act like that. You can act like that, and I think that you're so self-righteous and that you're so godly because you condemn people and you don't have a relationship with anyone who has any spiritual flaws because you're so perfect. Or, oh, I'm supposed to love even my enemy. And if someone's already turned their back on God, then why would you expect someone who's turned their back on God, who's not a Christian, why do Christians want non-Christians to act like Christians. I will, you know, there's only one reason a Christian wants a non-Christian to act like a Christian. And it has nothing to do for that non-Christian. You don't care about the non-Christian. You don't love the non-Christian. What you care about is your own selfishness and you want to be comfortable. And you want to live in a world where everyone does what you think is right so that you never have to hear or see anything that goes against your sensitive feelings. It's more about you than them. Because if you, if you really cared about them, the last thing you would want is an unregenerate person to attempt to live as a Christian. Why? That would be miserable life for them. That would be, that would be, that would be, no, that would be of no, nothing. That would be horrible. Think of how difficult it is for us, those of us who've placed our faith in Christ, to try to pursue a Christian life. We fall short all the time. And you expect an unregenerate person to somehow say, I'm going to embrace this system of morality based on the word of God and 
God, whom I don't believe in, I don't believe in his word, but I'm going to try to follow this system of morality. Why would you want that for them? What do you hope to accomplish? You just want to make the world better for you. I, don't, I want to walk into a store and I don't want to see anything that goes against my Christian faith. I want Target to look like a Christian store. And I want Walmart to look like a Christian. And I want Netflix to look like a Christian network. And I want everything to be so that my little eyes never see something that I don't like. I, I don't know why Christians want it that way. Let those who are not saved live their life. Now, if their actions become detrimental to others and hurt others, then yeah, that's when we have to say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a possible problem here. Can you not see the problem here? He gets, someone writes him a long letter who's very emotional and he's concerned about the relationship between the grandmother and it sounds like granddaughter. And I, I know I said grandson because I'm almost positive. The news article said grandson. I'd have to go back and find that news article. Maybe they corrected it. I don't know, but the, their, their grandchild and he, he's showing a level of compassion and understanding, but what happens in the Christian world? You're what is wrong with you. That's disgusting. How dare you? We're going to kick you off our Christian network. Because we wouldn't want someone who cares, who has compassion and empathy and love. How We don't want that. And in the course of that conversation, I said, you know, one of the ways in which to catch your granddaughter off guard is actually do the opposite of what she expects you to do. What does she expect you to do? Avoid her. Stay away from her. Don't get contaminated by the situation. I said, well, isn't that interesting? So what would happen if you actually went? Well, that gave great pause. And I said, but you should talk to your husband. You got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And those were all the caveats that went around the conversation. But then I said, well, I think you should go. And why don't you give her a gift? Well, how would I ever know that that would set the cat among the pigeons? Because after all, it was a personal conversation between myself and somebody that I've never met in my entire life. And it was born out of the kind of conviction that I was personally reckoning with myself. I don't like this. I'm opposed to this. I do not endorse this. I have no interest in this. But this is my granddaughter. Now, it's that context, then, that gave rise to that. Now, I've got to come back to the text because that was a deviation. The discovery that he hated to make, the sympathy that he failed to express. You see, what the problem is with this guy is that he views himself as the model son. He actually passes himself off in that way. But he thinks he's the model son, but he's living in the father's house like a slave. That's his terminology. I've never disobeyed your commands. I've been serving you. You see, the Pharisees were committed to slavish outward obedience, while inwardly 
they were estranged from God. And they said to one another, if only we can make sure that we don't get ourselves contaminated by any of that, then surely we'll be in a perfect position. But look at the way the fellow operates. And Jesus is telling this story in the awareness of the fact that it is these religious leaders who are opposed to him who will eventually kill him. I wonder, just hypothetically, if sometimes those who are most righteous outwardly, those who are most righteous in their own lives— if many of them are actually further away from God than those who are more sinful. I wonder if sometimes people's outward righteousness, that, that becomes the end game. My, my righteousness, my obedience to the law. I do this. I cross this T. I dot this I. I don't look here. I don't look there. I don't go there. I don't watch this. I don't listen to that. I don't dress that way. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do this. I am godly. And I wonder if in some ways that really becomes the end game. And then they take that and then they can go point their fingers at everyone. Look at that. They're probably not a Christian. 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 And they condemn, 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 condemn. I wonder if sometimes those who are most righteous are the ones who are further away from God. And those who are who are unrighteous who are willing to acknowledge their weakness and their sin, I wonder in many cases if they're closer to God. Now, I could be saying that out of selfish reasons because I know I'm not that righteous of a person, so maybe it's my own way of coping with my own unrighteousness, but I do think there's something to it because the Pharisees were a mess. They they, they were so righteous. They were so apparent, but then they wanted to kill God. So I don't know how righteous you really are. They they treated people with a total disdain and, and they were arrogant, condemning, just jerks, but they were so outwardly righteous. Wouldn't it be sad to be so outwardly righteous? You pass the Lordship test. You pass MacArthur's test, Jonathan Edwards' test. And you're like, look at me. I'm, I'm the example because I pass all tests. But I wonder in many cases if that's, that's your whole thing. That's it. Christianity is about sinful people, not just people who are not perfect, sinful people, people who are failures, people who are sinners being saved by an imputed, not an infused and imputed righteousness that comes by faith alone, not by works. In verse 29, I never disobeyed you. You never gave me a goat. No, I, I didn't get what I deserved. But this your son—can't even bring him to say my brother. This your son—actually, this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes? Who said anything about prostitutes? Pharisees often complain loudly of sins— they would be quite interested in committing themselves. 
Wow. Pharisees sometimes loudly complain about sins that they themselves would like to commit. I, I made this point last night and about calming a sin storm. If you listen to the to that uh, sermon that I preached last night, that our, sometimes our outward righteous indignation is nothing more than projection. It's a cover. We're condemning it because we deep down desire it. We, we, we've seen this so many times. People who are sometimes a part of ministries uh, that condemn homosexuality in the LGBTQ movement, they come out five, 10 years later as being homosexual. Sometimes the sin we fight the strongest against and we condemn the loudest is the one we struggle the most with. Sometimes you have to ask people, I, sometimes you want to look at people and go, I think you protest just a little too much because it may be giving something away. See, it's one thing to condemn a sin, but you condemn it saying, I condemn it because I desire it. I want it. I struggle with it. I love it, but I'm condemning it. But I'm not condemning it because I hate it. I'm condemning it because I know scripture condemns it. But let me tell you, that's my thing right there. That Now, I'm not saying you have to tell everyone everything that's your thing. But the point is, you can condemn sin while acknowledging you're a sinner because you are. No matter how much you want to cover it up, you can dress it all up. You can get all pious and sanctimonious and you can, you can use all the spiritual language and you can, you can, you can wear the right clothing and you can talk all super spiritual. But the reality is we deep down, we know what's going on. It's never the way you want it to look. Be very, very careful when you hear your pastor or your teacher, whoever it is, lambasting a certain area of life, especially in the realm of morality. Time and time again, you will discover that that loud protestation actually, sadly, tragically, proved to be a very thin smokescreen for what was actually going on in the hearts of these people. The last thing, by way of observation, is that there is in this a necessity that he refused to accept. He refused to accept the necessity of what had happened. The father says to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting. It was necessary. I think in the NIV or the King James Version, it was necessary to celebrate and be glad. This isn't just something that I I dreamt up on the fly. No. You see, the son— The religious person, unchanged by grace, is always dealing in rewards. Am I doing well enough? Am I accepted well enough? So either they become horribly arrogant because they think they're doing so well, or they become thoroughly depressed because they know they're not doing well at all. I didn't get the rewards. I didn't get the things that I deserve. That's essentially what he's saying. And this son? Well, he doesn't understand grace. He doesn't understand it at all. The younger son had a song to sing that the older son knew nothing about. In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulder brought me back to his 
home again. While angels in his presence sang, until the courts of heaven rang, O the love that sought me, O the blood that bought me, O the grace that brought me to your fold, to the sheepfold, wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. In that conversation with that grandmother, I was concerned about the well-being of their relationship more than anything else, hence my counsel. Don't misunderstand that in any way at all. If I was in the receiving end of another question about another situation from another person in another time, I may answer absolutely differently. But in that case, I answered in that way, and I would not answer in any other way, no matter what anybody says on the Internet as of the last 10 days. If that were the case, I would never— if that were the case, I, would never, I should never have said it in the first place. If people want to, me to recant and to repent, to repent? I, I, I repent daily, because I say a lot of things that I shouldn't say. I mean, check with Sue, but the fact of the matter is, I'm not ready to repent over this. I don't have to. Man, that man. I love that he's not backing down. I love that he's not backing down. I love it. I love it because he, he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything wrong for crying out loud. And I love the fact that he said in a different situation, I may answer differently because that's the way life works. And we always like these very black and white rules. But the point is situations are different. And what drives me crazy is these people going after him and want to condemn him. They're not even taking their morality to its logical conclusion because the logical conclusion is you would just basically stop doing anything or going anywhere. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he talked about, wait, I'm not talking about separating from the people in the world. You'd have to leave the world. I'm talking about if someone calls himself a brother. That's, the, that's, the, that's what the Bible refers to, at least in that, that area of separation. I'm glad he's not backing down. I'm glad he's not. And I hope he, and I hope you will look. If you have the sermons 2.0 app, look for truth for life with Alistair Begg. Follow him on the sermons 2.0 app. And when this sermon gets posted on sermon audio, leave some positive comments. Leave some positive comments. Thank him for, for his, his taking a stand on just basic human decency. Treating people like human beings. People, we just, we, sometimes as Christians, we, we, we're all about the sanctity of life and the value of, of human beings. And then we treat people as, you're just a disgusting sinner who deserves to burn in hell. They're like, wow, you're, you're so, you're so wonderful. Thank you so much for your, your, your wonderful kindness. Everyone is a sinner. There's just some sins that bother you more than others. Why is it that you are more bothered by that sin and not another sin? That makes you uncomfortable. See, that's you. The problem is with you. But you know that because there's plenty of other sin that you don't, you don't, you're not bothered by, you're not concerned with. It, you don't even care. But all of a sudden, this sin, oh, you, you care, you care, you care. We're so upset about same-sex marriages. 
a, a civil union recognized by a civil government. Not, 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 it's just recognized by the government. And Christians are like, how dare that? We can't have that. Why, well, how is that mess? How does that bother you? Well, it's going to destroy the sanctity of marriage. Have you looked at the church? How about we worry what, how we, what we do instead of worrying about what they do? Now, let me say something that would be a little explosive. (laughs) I've lived here for 40 years, and those who know me best know that when we talk theology, when we talk stuff, I've always said I am a little bit out of sync with the American evangelical world for this reason, that I am the product of British evangelicalism— represented by John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Eric Alexander, Sinclair Ferguson, Derek Prime. I am a product of that. I have never been a product of American fundamentalism. I come from a world in which it is possible for people to actually grasp the fact that there are nuances in things. Those of you who are lawyers understand this. Everything is not so categorically clear that if you put one foot out of this box, you've got to be removed from the box forever. And so I went back to prove to myself that that really is the case, and I dug out a book that I've had since I was in my 20s, uh, Christ the Controversialist by John Stott. And in that book, he is tackling the challenges of living in the world uh, without being um, capitulating to the thoughts of the world. And chapter 7, and I'm sure this is going to sell a lot of these books. John is now in heaven, and it won't matter to him. But uh, chapter 7 is, is on responsibility, colon, withdrawal, or involvement. So he writes an entire chapter on this question. How in the world do we manage uh, to live in this way. And he, he outlines it by, first of all, identifying the attitude of the Pharisee. And he points out—and I'm not here to give you the whole book—but he points out that when, after the Babylonian captivity, uh, the, the, the people were repatriated, the exiles came back, and they were absolutely determined that they would not be sucked into the vortex that was represented in the the context to which they had returned. And they were committed to holiness, and they knew that God required them to be holy. But what they forgot was that the holiness was, first of all, a holiness of heart and mind and thought. Some of them then decided, well, we can go fairly close to the environment in which we're living. And that is true not only then. You can read it in Nehemiah. We're reading there at the moment in in McShane. And you can see that happening, the question of marriage and so on. As time continues, and the Jews are living, for example, in the context of Greece, uh, of Alexander the Great, and so on, the infiltration of the culture into Judaism was such that there were two branches that emerged from it. 
One branch were the Hellenists, who said, I think that we can engage with the culture, and uh, in doing so, they surrendered some of their convictions. On the other side of the Hellenists were the Hasideans, or the Hasidim. The Hasidim are present in contemporary America, and some of you are friends who are part of that. You meet them at the airport, and so on. And the Hasidim said, no, under no circumstances are we going to get involved in any of this stuff. Pharisees, actually, is an Aramaic term for separatists. And the Pharisees were the religious exclusives of their day. Quotes, in their determination to conform strictly to the law, they held aloof from any and every contact which, in their view, might defile them. This entailed an avoidance not only of Gentiles, not only of Hellenized Jews, whom they regarded as liberals, but of the common people as well, who through ignorance of the law no doubt broke it, and as lawbreakers were unclean. The superior and scornful attitude which the Pharisees adopted towards the common people appears several times in the Gospels, including right here in chapter 15. The Pharisaic doctrine of holiness of separation from the world, he says, was a perverted doctrine. The motivation to keep yourself pure and holy is a right motivation, but it was perverted by the way in which they applied it. Instead of seeking to be holy in thought and word and deed, while retaining relationships of love and care with all men— they withdrew from social contact with sinners and despised those who didn't follow suit. They basically became a holy club. And they, in the process, became harsh and censorious. And it is that which Jesus is taking on when he tells these stories and when he gives these parables. If that's the Pharisee's attitude, what is the attitude of Jesus? Well, the attitude of Jesus is totally at variance with that of the Pharisees themselves. They were scandalized by his free and easy fraternization with these people. You can't do that. You can't go there. That's why it begins. All the, the publicans and sinners who said, we got to go meet Jesus. And the Pharisees were grumbling. Can you believe this thing? He goes to the house of publicans and sinners. He meets with sinners. Bartimaeus, a blind guy. Even the disciples said, I'll be quiet, Bartimaeus. And he has to turn to his boys, and he says, hey, don't say that to Bartimaeus. Go call Bartimaeus. And he gives Bartimaeus his sight. One of the six things which a rabbi was not permitted to do was to converse with a woman in public. That was a sure indication that you were off base. That's why when his disciples came back, after they'd gone away for the food, when you read that as in the present context, you say, and they were surprised that he was talking with a woman. Why would you be surprised that he's talking with a woman? Because rabbis don't talk to women. The strictest Hasidim wouldn't even be seen talking to their own wives in public. That's how tight they wanted to draw the circle. The Pharisees would gather up their robes in righteous horror— at the possibility of even coming within breathing space of a prostitute. 
And she comes and breaks a flask over his feet. This guy cannot be who he says he is. If he was really the Son of God, he wouldn't be doing this. Loved ones, Phariseeism is alive and well in all of our hearts. We have to guard against it. The motivation for purity and holiness of life and circumspection and so on is absolutely unquestionable. I think for many, and this goes all the way back to the division within Judaism, goes back to the division within even American Christianity with some evangelicals versus the fundamentalists, modernists, and all of the fights that have happened even in evangelicalism within the United States of America. For some people, Christianity is nothing more than a system of morality, and it's black and white. You must follow it. In any deviation, you are damned. It's just a moral system. It's not about Christ. Now, they may say it's about Christ and him crucified. They may say all the right words, but over and over and over in their thinking and their action, it's morality, 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 morality. Now, obviously, the Bible addresses moral issues. No question about it. But some people just so, so they replace Christ with morality. Christ is simply there as a tool to justify their moral stand. And then they almost come along as the Pharisees and say, and you can't do this and you can't do this. Even if the scriptures are not specifically condemning it, they will, they will condemn it anyway. The real challenge comes when we are confronted by issues that don't just fit our clean little categories. What distinguished Jesus from the Pharisees, quote Stott, was in a word, grace. The divine initiative which first seeks and then saves the lost sinner. He says of the older brother, he represents those to whom religion is a matter of merit and its just reward and to whom the concept of grace is unjust, even immoral. He knew nothing of the guilt which no human merit can expunge, nothing of the divine offer of an unmerited forgiveness, nothing of heavenly joy over penitent sinners. He was harsh, sour, self-righteous, and pitiless. While others made merry, he himself stayed away, and he sulked. In brief, he was a Pharisee, and of the Pharisees, Edelsheim could write, theirs was not a gospel to the lost. They had nothing to say to sinners. Christ's fraternization with outcasts was interpreted by the Pharisees as an inexcusable compromise with sin. They did not see it for what it really was, an expression of the divine, divine compassion uh, towards sinners. Now, the challenge in this—and I'm going to wrap this up because time goes—the challenge for me in this is I just assume—and I'm not going to assume it anymore—I assume that people are able to put two and two together and get four, not five or seven or nine or whatever it is. So, for example, 
um, in the last days when this thing began. Um, my daughter said to me, Dad, you were way ahead of this game a long time ago when Ellen DeGeneres came out and you preached those sermons on the gay debate. I mean, you've been so clear about this for all of your ministry. What is this about? I said, honey, I don't, I don't really know what it's about, but uh, yeah, that's right. And most recently, in dealing with Romans chapter 1. So I assume that anybody who picks this up goes, oh, well, wait a minute. Whatever, whatever he's on about there, there's no reason for alarm, because after all, listen to what he said. And this is what I said in Romans 1, talking about this very issue. Quotes, so here's the challenge. How do you do this? In other words, how do you, how do you express the love of Jesus and, and do so in a way that doesn't just compromise everything? How do you honor God, obey his word, and treat your neighbors and your friends and your family members who have decided to go down this wrong path? Some people have decided the way to handle it is by admonition. So you just simply stand up and keep telling them, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. Some people have decided, well, we just won't say anything at all. Just let it go. Who cares? You know, it's a big world. People do different things. Neither is a possibility for a Bible-believing Christian. We are to treat with honor those who view us with hatred. Now, understand that this grandchild was an enemy of the gospel, an enemy, really, in the family circle by dint of her lifestyle, an enemy. And Jesus says, you're supposed to love your enemies. Now, we can disagree over whether I gave that grandmother good advice or not. Not everybody on the pastoral team thinks I gave very good advice. And as I said, uh, you know, on another occasion with a different person in a different context, the advice may be very different. But at least let's acknowledge the fact that what we're doing is we're wrestling with biblical principle. And when principle for, let's say, holiness of life comes up against the principle of love for your enemy, how are you, how are you going to put that together? You got a problem with the grandmother showing up, sitting on the front row in a context that she absolutely despises, and sitting on our lap, nicely wrapped with beautiful paper and a bow around it, is her gift, the gift of a Bible. For a granddaughter, she knows, has no interest in the Bible. But because she believes that the entrance of God's Word brings light, she is prepared to trust the Holy Spirit to do the work. What happens to homosexual people, in my experience, quotes, is that they are either reviled or they are affirmed. The Christian has to say, we will not treat you in either of those ways. We cannot revile you, but we cannot affirm you. And the reason that we can't revile you is the same reason why we can't affirm you—because of the Bible, because of God's love, because of His grace, and because of His goodness. Maybe I'll just give you a couple of comments there are one or two good ones, and um, not, not many, though. And um, my friends and family have been saving me from, from the, the most strident of them. 
I'm, gra- I'm grateful for that. Um, uh, this, yeah, that was, that was a different one. Hang on, don't worry. We'll be there. This just came from somebody to Jeff, to me, from South Africa. Uh, Please pass on this short message to Pastor Begg. Following the criticism he's received over his statement concerning Christians attending a gay marriage. Thank you, Pastor Begg, for your balanced Christian approach to what is such a difficult topic for Christians to deal with. You're clear on the fact that homosexuality is not God-approved, but you've shown wisdom and compassion as you show how Christians who have made their position clear on this matter can still be a light to those who live in darkness. I am one who agrees with your big biblical view as to the sinfulness of these things and have myself been wrestling with how to advise people who have family members who are in gay relationships, etc., without compromising our Christian position on sin. I'm sorry that you've had such a negative reaction from others in our Christian family who have a more hardline attitude and seemingly misunderstood your position of compassion and see it as compromise. I don't believe you've compromised your position at all, but have tried to show love and compassion. As a fellow pastor who was a true prodigal son, it was only the saving grace and compassion of Christ that saved me and the love of Christian parents who prayed for me over 12 years. Their compassion was not compromise. I knew that they did not approve of my sinful lifestyle living with a woman, but they continued to love me and to uphold me. Their compassion is what I now see in your advice. Now, be encouraged. And then perhaps just one other, um, if I can can find it, from— Brother, he, he's reading the positive ones. That's good. To, hey, Alistair Begg, don't go to the Christian Post and read the comments underneath it, and and basically stay from away from any Christian website because you don't want to read the comments underneath it. You don't. You don't. You don't. Because yeah, just the comments I have read. I'm like, this is absolutely horrifying. So I'm glad he. I'm. I, I guess it's good he's got people to try to protect him from it. I guess that's a good thing. I guess. Uh, but yeah, I guess he's he's going to turn this into a positive. I thought he was going to read some of the negatives, but I think he's just going to read another positive one, and then we'll wrap this up. This begins, forgive my intrusion. You probably need my encouragement less than I need to offer it, but I feel compelled to say I love you, and thank God for all right, so he's going to read the positive ones, which is good, which is probably smart, which is probably smart. I probably would have approached it by reading the negative ones and then try to defend myself, which probably means that, you know, that's that's probably foolish. He's probably doing it the much more wise way where I'd be like, How, oh, you want to come at me? Well, come at me. Let's do that. I would be like, oh, you want to talk about, tra- you want to talk trash? Okay. Yeah, I, I would probably not handle it in such a, a godly way because you know what I need to remember? Loving those who are homosexual means I also love those Christians who would attack and call me names 
because I'm supposed to love even my enemies. So I would have been much more likely, okay, hey, hey, you need to show love and compassion to those in the LGBTQ world. But then many times those in the Christian world, I'm like, what is wrong with you? And then I, 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 I want to just have a confrontation. See, So see, I have to apply it in both ways, right? I need to show love and compassion, even those who are within the body of Christ, who are pharisaical, arrogant, condemning jerks who want to bully you around in comment sections or in email. Well, I need to show love and compassion. There was someone who I think posted a comment on YouTube that I wanted to respond with. I think early this morning I saw it and I almost went, grabbed the iPad and wanted to respond in a very sarcastic way. And I just said, nope, I'm not going nope, to do that. I stopped myself. Now, what I should have done is respond in a much more loving way, but I, but I just did not. So, but, but right there, I'm guilty. Because inside, <laughs> I was like, oh, you want to be a jerk. Okay, I, I can be that way as well. See, that's, that's not godly. That's not godly. We're supposed to love even our enemies. We are to bless those who would be against us. Say, I, I have to learn from this as well. I, I def, in defending Alistair Begg, I may put myself in a position where I'm attacked, but I need to then show love to those I'm attacked because the whole point of this is showing love to those whom you may disagree with. But you can go look that up. Truth for Life. Um, I think it's Compassion versus Condemnation by Alistair Begg. I don't think it's on the Sermons 2.0 app yet. It is on the uh, Truth for Life website. You can find it. Um, you'll. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be lots of responses to it, but I wanted us to hear his response, and then I wanted to offer my own thoughts about it. I'm glad he did not back down. I'm glad he did not apologize. I hope it fixes the controversy. I hope that American Family Radio would repent of their foolishness of removing him from the airwaves. And I hope anyone else who's thinking about removing him from the airwaves will stop and think it through before they make a decision. A lot could be said, but we have been on the air now for 81 minutes, so I will stop. You can email me your thoughts and opinions to newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Someone said thanks for covering and commenting on this. Well, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it for everyone else listening. Thank you so very much. And uh, hey, pray for pray for Alistair Begg tonight. Pray for his family. You know, when you're getting caught up in the middle of these controversies, it is, man, it's stressful and anxiety. And it's just, and then, you know, I don't know how much getting pulled from American Family Radio, I don't know how much that could hurt his ministry. Now, he's well-established, and he's in his 70s, so I'm hoping there's nothing going on in his church. Hopefully, people aren't leaving his church. Hopefully, everything is good, but you never know. You never know. You never know. I hope it doesn't hurt his ministry. Because, I, I look, I don't know what it's like to be a part of a big ministry, but I'm a small ministry. I mean, I'm a, I'm a nobody, right? And I, I know, you know, in 2023, people who supported 
my church and supported this podcast. Got mad and that's it. They're not listening anymore. They deleted the app and they stopped financially giving. Well, it doesn't take a lot of people no longer supporting you financially that can be absolutely detrimental to your to your entire ministry. I would hate for his ministry to now be in great danger, you know, uh, from that perspective. I haven't heard anything like that, but I hope that's not the case. I just know how quickly it can turn. Because people are like, that's it. I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm deleting the app and that's it. I'm not giving you another dime. Oh my goodness. Okay. What did I do now? What did I say now? Sometimes you don't even know what you said. All right. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a wonderful evening. Pray for Alistair Begg. Christianity, we got a lot of problems. They start with me, starts with you, starts with this politically, ideologically hijacked Christianity that's no longer biblical and theological, and it's a major problem. Thanks for listening. God bless.